uh, the idea is to listen and then discuss. Um, it's absolutely not an interrogation. It's about exchanging ideas to deepen understanding. And the three of you, each in their own ways, have very strong experience on, um, on the issues which are broadly grouped under infrastructure and energy, but obviously those will inevitably range uh, pretty, pretty widely. Um, can I ask you to do what I'm about to do, is turn off the uh, mobile phones. Um, it would be a good idea if you turn them off, just didn't put them on silent. The choice is yours. We're going to ask each of our guests, Stephen Fries, David Newbury, Bridget Rosewell, to uh, speak um, for about 15 minutes. Um, you're Bridget Roswell today. I'm an incident agent, yes. And so we'll have the three to get three presentations together, and then we'll have a conversation. And you should also please feel free to ask each other questions about what, uh, what, is, what has been said. Um, uh, Tim Besley, who co-chairs this commission with John Van Rienen, um, had to go back to, uh, to Barnes to let his son into the house, who locked himself out, uh, which shows, as we were discussing, that uh, simple measures of material well-being don't necessarily constitute either good objectives or good explanatory uh, approaches to individual behaviour. Um, but we're not here to dwell on the uh, philosophy and behavioural issues, although of course they may come up in infrastructure and uh, energy. We're here first to hear from um, Stephen Fries, uh, who is the Chief Economist at the Department of Energy and Climate Change, and uh, also someone that uh, I worked with with uh, great pleasure and productivity at the EBRD. Stephen. Thanks very much, Nick. It's a great pleasure to, uh, to be here today and to have this opportunity to um, share a few thoughts on the issue of um, infrastructure and growth. And I've been appropriately selective in what I'm going to, to speak on. And so I'm um, going to pick and choose from the menu. So I'm going to talk about energy infrastructure. I'm also going to talk about investment in energy infrastructure, the transition in the energy system, and long-run growth. So I'm not going to touch on the short-run issues that are often associated with infrastructure and its role in the current business cycle, but take a long-run perspective. Now, before I get into the, the detail, I want to begin with two very general framing points. One is about the, uh, the socially essential nature of energy and its fundamental role as a driver of, of economic, social, and political development over very long sweeps of time. And um, the historian and archaeologist at Stanford, Ian Morris, has done uh, some very good work at documenting over very long periods of time over the sweep of history, really the relationship between what he's termed as energy capture in its most broadest sense and uh, social progress in its many different dimensions. And so this is really about the, the very fundamental nature of, of energy and at least over very long sweeps of time, its causal contribution to uh, growth and development. Um, 
The second point that I want to begin in framing the uh, presentation is that the way in which we produce and use energy is currently unsustainable in many different dimensions. And one of the most comprehensive statements about the lack of sustainability of energy was by John Holdren in his um, address that covered not only local environmental issues, but also obviously climate change. So um, that's kind of the framing. Stephen, just one thing about the numbers. Yeah. Sorry, uh, only questions only for clarification. But the, yes. It's 2,000 calories. Kilocalories. Kilo 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 yes. <laughs> and then the 230. So essentially, this is what you need to survive. Yeah. And this is. So. This is 100 times. Huh? Uh, 10,000 times. It's the it's a, it's a 2,000 and the 230,000 that stopped me for the minute here. Yeah. Right, I don't want to get kind of yeah, okay, it, bogged down. This is a quote from, uh, um, okay. from his work on social development, but essentially we, we use a, okay. a lot of energy is captured essentially through our use of fossil fuels, um, um, and that provides a rough scaling of what's required. Okay, so, um, so that's the context. Um, but essentially, I'm going to speak to three specific points of evidence around um, energy and long-run growth. Um, first, I'm going to briefly discuss the evidence about what we know on um, the contribution of energy infrastructure to long-run growth um, based on more recent empirical studies. The second area that I'm going to focus on is the the transition in the energy sector and the role of policy. And then the third point is on the interplay between the energy transition and long-run growth. So that's the, the structure that I'm going to, um, to follow today. So what we know empirically about the relationship between investment in all forms of infrastructure, including energy and long-run growth, um, this is an area in which there is relatively scant empirical evidence, but one of the more useful studies is a recent working paper by the OECD that looks at um, uh, the contribution of a number of different dimensions of energy infrastructure to growth over the past 20 to 30 years in, um, in a panel econometric study. Um, the, um, the broad conclusions from this empirical investigation of the relationship are that there is no one um, single relationship between the extent of infrastructure development and growth, but rather the effects tend to be country-specific and indeed sector-specific. But since we're focusing here on the, the UK and on energy, one of the robust findings in this report is that, at least looking backwards, the development of energy infrastructure in the UK has contributed positively to um, economic growth in the UK, um, and unfortunately, from the way in, because of the way in which the econometric investigation is structured, it's not possible to provide a quantitative interpretation of its contribution to growth, but simply the evidence suggests that it has made a contribution to growth above and beyond the productivity of average investment in the economy. Um, the other evidence that we have about UK energy infrastructure from an international comparative <coughs> 
perspective comes from the World Economic Forum and the Global Competitiveness uh, Report, which ranks uh, UK energy infrastructure, the services, the quality of services derived from it as uh, ranking fourth within Europe, and this is essentially a measure of the quality of service um, in its various dimensions, including price, where the UK on the electricity side is relatively cost-effective, and also it's a highly reliable system. Um, the other uh, piece of cross-country evidence that is available is from the World Bank Doing Business Survey, and that suggests that um, access to um, energy is, is less favorable than the quality of service once you receive it, once you're connected. Um, so that's, uh, I think, a snapshot of evidence about the contribution of energy to um, growth, at least looking backwards and where we stand today. The second important point that I'd like to make about um, the state of energy infrastructure looking forward is that um, uh, substantial investment is needed in UK energy infrastructure. Um, and this is driven by uh, the need to replace what already exists as well as it comes to the end of its um, economic life. And uh, part of that's driven by uh, EU environmental regulations, other part is particularly on the nuclear side, is driven by uh, um, uh, the uh, regulated retirement dates for um, uh, the existing nuclear fleet, though you may have read recently that there's some uh, kind of debate about the timing of this, but um, uh, the timing may shift a bit, but the inevitability of having to replace this is um, uh, inevitable. The, the second area uh, that's required for investment in, in energy infrastructure is around um, uh, the, the network and the movement towards a smarter grid. There are also significant um, uh, investment needs, particularly on the natural gas side and the pipeline infrastructure and, uh, and in storage looking forward um, and possibly on shale gas. So... That's um, a framing of uh, the investment needs going forward. Those investment needs, as I said, are largely about maintaining the level of service provision relative to the scale of the economy and beginning the process, uh, acceler promoting its decarbonization. The, um, the other point that I'd like to make about the nature of investment in energy infrastructure is it's actually quite regionally diverse. And so it helps facilitate the, diverse, the spread of investment in economic activity across the UK. Um, the one area of energy infrastructure in which um, uh, significant investment is underway is in the area of renewables investment supported by the renewables obligation. And um, over, at, over the course of the past year, um, investment commitments totaling almost £7 billion have been made for renewables investment and this is associated with an estimated 21,000 jobs. And as you can see from the spatial distribution of the jobs, they, um, a significant concentration of these jobs are in the, the Northeast and in Scotland. So now let me turn to the issue of the energy transition and how UK policy framework is seeking to drive the transformation of the, uh, the energy system. The, uh, in setting the UK policy framework, we essentially have two objectives. One is around energy security, maintaining the security of supply, 
and the second is to drive the, the low-carbon transition. And in driving the low-carbon transition, we essentially have um, two sets of legal obligations. One is to meet the renewables target for 2020, which uh, is set at in, through EU agreement, and that states that um, the commitment there is that 15% of final uh, UK energy consumption has to be from renewable sources by 2020. And of course, we also have the, the legal obligations under the Climate Change Act, which requires for um, an 80% of reduction in emissions by uh, 2050 compared with 1990 levels, and of course, the sequence of carbon budgets that set the pathway to, to that goal. Um, and so what this chart shows simply is that relative to the carbon budgets that have set, we're on track to meet the first three carbon budgets, but a step up in meeting the, uh, the fourth carbon budget is, is required to hit that goal that was recently agreed. Now, from a policy perspective, we use a range of instruments to deliver this required transformation of the energy system. There are a set of market-based instruments that essentially price carbon or increase the taxation of energy. There are energy efficiency regulations that boost uh, the efficiency standards of products. Uh, there are obligations on energy companies to help their consumers use energy more efficiently. Um, also, in the energy um, efficiency side, we're moving towards a more market-based approach to uh, driving the uptake of energy efficiency through the Green Deal. And then um, we have a number of uh, policies aimed at supporting the acceleration of low-carbon technology, the most important of which is the renewables obligation, which I just previously mentioned. And of course, we also have a set of electricity market reforms that aim to overhaul the structure of the electricity market. Um, and of course, we just made a major announcement on that yesterday. So that's the suite of instruments that are aimed at driving the transition in energy. And this is essentially what we're trying to change. This is the total stock of capital in the UK. Um, and we break it down essentially between those sectors that produce energy, which is the little bit at the bottom. So that's the, the amount of existing UK capital stock that is devoted to the production of energy, primary energy and electricity, and, its, and the transformation of, um, of hydrocarbons into liquid fuels. And also we have a, a section of the capital stock which is highly consuming of energy, the most important part of which is uh, structures, but also transport and other energy-intensive sectors. And so our policy framework is aimed at... Um, shaping about $170 billion of investment over the lifetime of the policies, and that's essentially aimed at reshaping a capital stock of total value of about £3.2 trillion, and the energy-intensive uh, usage or producing part of the capital stock is about £1.7 So that'll give you a rough scaling. So we're... Um, uh, of what we're seeking to influence and the amount that we're spending to reshape it. Um, and so we're spending about 10% over the lifetime of these policies, which is roughly 10 years, give or take a bit, um, in reshaping the capital stock. So the last part of my presentation is that I want to draw out the implications of what these policies are for growth. So we started with the fundamental proposition that Basically, energy infrastructure is good for growth. It historically has been. 
But of course, we're going through an energy transition, and so it's also important to trace through the implications of that energy transition for growth. Um, and so one way of identifying the impact of this portfolio of policies on growth is to look at the net present value of the policies. And this will give you a sense, roughly, of the extent to which the policies are delivering uh, an improvement in addition to the capital stock that is roughly consistent with the average productivity of capital, slightly better or slightly worse. And so um, part of our policy portfolio has strongly positive um, NPVs, and this is essentially the port uh, that part of the policy portfolio that is aimed at um, promoting energy efficiency. Um, the part of the policy portfolio that um, has negative NPVs, at least narrowly measured and excluding um, uh, some of the non-monetized benefits from key monetized benefits from the policy, are aimed at um, primarily accelerating new low-carbon technologies. And on balance, um, if you include the value of avoided carbon emissions, the um, the policy portfolio as a whole has a positive net present value. If you were to take away the, the value of avoided carbon, um, you'd have a slightly negative overall uh, NPV for the policy portfolio. So if you wanted to focus very narrowly on measured GDP and the impact of the, um, the suite of policies or the portfolio policies that we're pursuing, it has a slight drag on GDP growth um, over the course of the next decade. Um, um, so these are measured through delivering the first three carbon budgets. Um, but the drag is of the order of magnitude of a few basis points once you model them quantitatively. Um, and of course that's excluding the sustainability uh, considerations of growth and the key non-monetized benefits. Um, so let me just turn briefly to the key non-monetized benefits from the portfolio of policies. By non-monetized, I mean essentially non-measured because they're very difficult to measure. Um, and so um, one area that, one channel through which this portfolio of policies contributes um, a key non-monetized benefits is by reducing the exposure of the economy to macroeconomic volatility, and particularly through energy price shocks through oil and gas price volatility. It does so through energy efficiency and reducing the energy intensity of GDP, and it also does by diversifying the sources of primary energy away from fossil fuels towards renewables. And there is a recent study by Oxford Economics, which is published on the DEC website, uh, which seeks to trace through the implications of these two channels in reducing um, macroeconomic uh, the exposure of um, uh, the macroeconomy to these uh, um, an oil and gas price shock, and the um, policies that would deliver um, a 10% reduction in oil demand relative to GDP and a 20% reduction in natural gas demand would um, reduce the intensity of um, uh, an oil price shock impact on the globe, on the UK economy by about 30%. Um, a second key area of non-monetized benefits from the policy of portfolios comes from um, uh, the impact of our policies on accelerating technological change, and particularly by accelerating um, 
the deployment and learning associated with the development of new low-carbon technologies, we are supporting the driving down of costs for um, selected low-carbon technologies. On the left-hand side panel here, we have essentially the following trajectory of costs that are projected um, through increased deployment and learning associated with that for offshore wind. The two mature technologies in this graph are essentially uh, natural gas uh, generation, the cost of which is going up essentially due to the carbon price floor and onshore wind. And then the bottom panel here is on uh, nuclear, and this is essentially the difference in cost between first-of-a-kind EPR reactors and nth-of-a-kind EPR reactors. And that's essentially the gain that you can achieve through um, increased deployment. The figures on the right-hand side panel are on CCS, but um, I won't discuss them in detail uh, given the time. Um, And the last key non-monetized benefit from the portfolio policies is essentially on unlocking new sources of growth. And um, our colleagues at Biz have done some very interesting work in identifying um, areas of the UK economy associated with the um, uh, transition to um, providing low-carbon goods and environmental services. Um, And this provides a rough um, a characterization of those sectors which are expected to grow relatively quickly as a result of this transformation of the economy. And of course, it's not perhaps surprising given the UK comparative advantage in more conventional dimensions that uh, finance comes at the top of the list. So, this is a potentially a characterization of some of the winners um, across the economy that, and potential new sources of growth associated with the transition. Um, But at the same time, it's important to recognize that there will also be losers, um, particularly in the energy-intensive sectors. So um, let me just conclude. um, So beginning with the basics, so the available evidence that we have from a cross-country comparative perspective is that energy infrastructure is, in a UK context, good for growth, and that there are substantial investment requirements in the sector in order to maintain those benefits uh, that have been realized from the past and also to begin the, um, to continue the transition to um, a lower carbon economy. Um, and um, at the same time, we need to drive this transition to, um, uh, uh, to a low carbon economy um, by improving energy efficiency and um, accelerating the development of low carbon technologies Excluding uh, sustainability considerations and non-monetized benefits, this policy portfolio is essentially growth neutral, but those are other important dimensions um, that should be considered when evaluating the impact of the policies going forward. Um, And it's also, let me just conclude by noting that um, we need to increase the level of ambition in the policy framework to hit the fourth carbon budget um, and success in the technology acceleration front and um, agreement at an international level are key to consolidating those uh, gains. So, thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen. Um, the, the slides, uh, we normally put the slides up on the website, is that? that yes, that's fine. Yes, because there's lots of stuff that I'm sure others... Sorry. The, 
there's uh, lots of stuff that uh, others will um, want to use, I'm sure. So thanks very much, Stephen. And now um, we've got actually uh, public sector, academic life, and uh, private sector is the sequence. So, uh, David, this is uh, academic life, but obviously you've spent so much of your time thinking and writing, researching in this area, so you're very welcome back to the see. Thank you. Um, I've already sent over the answers to the exam questions that were set and uh, an associated paper on stimulating growth. And I'll leave behind a paper I gave to the Treasury in 2006. On, but I want to start with um, two propositions. Um, the first is that we have a serious uh, impediment to rational political and public sector thinking in that the balance sheet of the public sector <coughs> has debts but it doesn't have assets properly in there so when we talk about debt to GDP ratios it's not net debt it's debt and that is a foolish target <coughs> and an implication of that is if we create assets whose value is greater than the debt uh, then we improve the situation of the economy. So it should not be macroeconomic policy to cut back investment in times of stress, uh, which is exactly what almost all governments, and especially our very own government, seem to be determined to do. So an implication of that is you look at benefit-cost ratios and you determine which ones are greater than one, <clears throat> and you then, if you trust your evaluation, add that to the positive side of the balance sheet. Um, and... I would point out the obvious fact at the moment that it has never been a cheaper moment for HMG to borrow real indexed debt. Um, and so the challenge of making benefit-cost ratios greater than one is, is less demanding than it's ever been. <clears throat> uh, the second thing um, is an aside in a way, and it says that uh, if you underinvest with the kind of accounting we have in the public sector then it looks as though it's cheaper because we don't properly account for the interest on and depreciation of the modern equivalent asset value of the existing stock of debt or of assets. <coughs> and that's very much what we've been doing in, in the many of the um, publicly financed infrastructure sectors. So we have been living, if you like, on borrowed time. And Unfortunately, the implication of that is when we finally have to get round to invest, it looks more expensive than it is because we haven't set aside through proper accounting the necessary flow to finance the existing assets that are wearing out. Okay, so th those are preliminary remarks. And so now let me take the exam questions. What aspects of infrastructure and energy are particularly important for productivity and growth? And I'm glad that Stephen mentioned the paper by Egert because there is a long macroeconomic tradition going suddenly back to Ashour, uh, trying to identify the contribution of public sector investment to growth. Um, and as Stephen said, it's, it's usually a mixed picture. And my reading of that is quite simple. Um, assets, <coughs> or in particular publicly financed infrastructure, has a fairly low elasticity of substitution with everything else. And that means that if you have too little, it acts as a severe impediment to growth. Uh, and you can think of constraints on the transport system and ports are the most obvious places where this tends to show up in some countries. Airports are arguably where it shows up in other countries. Uh, if you have inadequate electricity, you have blackouts. The value of lost load is extraordinarily high. 
uh, and you can measure the cost that's done by inadequate infrastructure quite simply. But if you've got slightly too much, the extra benefit you get is negligible. Uh, so overinvestment doesn't show up as improved productivity. Underinvestment shows up to the extent that you can identify it as a lost growth opportunity. So uh, the macro story isn't terribly helpful, and I would therefore concentrate on the micro view, which it comes down to social cost-benefit analysis. Uh, and if I look at transport and energy, and it's very pleasing that uh, Stephen has picked up most of the points that uh, I would have otherwise <coughs> had to spend time on, on the energy front. So um, in the transport sector, what I think we are lucky in this country um, is that for a long time the Department of Transport has refined and improved and applied uh, sensible social cost-benefit analysis through COBA, then NATA, and then various advancements on that. And the Eddington report, which seems to have been largely ignored, uh, is extremely good at identifying the benefits to be had from investing in various forms of transport infrastructure. And the truly shocking thing is he identifies an extremely large number of projects with benefit-cost ratios greater than four. Uh, he also points out that when you add in all of the external, external costs and benefits, I mean, obviously there are costs in terms of environmental damage and social damage as well, but the agglomeration and um, competitive benefits outweigh those considerably. So we, when you add in the non-marketed benefits, they improve rather than reduce the benefit-cost ratios, and that strengthens the case for doing the investment. Um, so um, the, there's some dispute, and I mentioned this in the paper I sent you, uh, as to how large those are, but the, the argument that they're positive, I think, is very strong. Uh, when you try and do cost-benefit analysis for energy, and Stephen, I think, illustrated this extremely well, uh, it all hinges on how you treat the public good benefits of research and development learning by doing and um, climate change mitigation. Uh, and on none of those, we have a, a very firm grasp. We have targets for renewables, which are an attempt to provide club goods of research and development and deployment through the European Union by giving them each an obligation to spend a certain amount of money. They're not perfect, um, but they're defensible. Uh, and on climate change, of course, um, working out what the costs, uh, as you know, is problematic. I have a very simple view, and that is if it doesn't include decarbonising the electricity sector, we're doomed. What's the cost of doing that? Puts a minimum cost on the social cost of carbon. Um, and it's higher than the emissions trading system delivers at the moment. Uh, so, um, just to summarise on transport, um, very high returns. We are obviously massively under-investing uh, in the electricity sector, we have a very reliable system at the moment, whether that will be maintained as the plant comes off the system is another matter, uh, but effectively the Secretary of State has taken responsibility for throwing our money at it because he will require a greater security of supply than I suspect is on purely financial terms sensible, so I wouldn't worry about the lights going out <coughs> except by accident. Um, how do we compare internationally? Uh, I haven't looked at the transport system for 10 years. When I last looked and used to follow this, uh, we were doing very badly by European standards. I see no reason to believe that that's changed because we underinvest in maintenance and the rate at which we're road building has fallen to unbelievably low levels compared to the rate of increase on demand for transport. So 
uh, and as Eddie Bill pointed out, the uh, transport system is, is creaking. <coughs> um, in terms of um, the energy sector, um, I think uh, by international, by EU standards, um, we're not doing badly, but that's not a very high hurdle because most countries are pursuing moderately inefficient and very expensive policies. Um, and <clears throat> most countries like us find it extraordinarily difficult uh, to get planning permission to build the transmission infrastructure and the wind farm infrastructure that we need if we're serious about meeting the renewables targets. Uh, so we're not unusual in that. Uh, arguably, we're slightly slower at wind farm development than the continent, but transmission seems to be problematic everywhere. <coughs> um, do we suffer from underinvestment in infrastructure, and if so, what kind of in infrastructure and in what sectors? Um, well, ag again, if I wanted to look at the transport sector, I would say we have a stalled road building program. Um, we have rising congestion. We have deferred maintenance, which is raising future costs of repair. We have an insane airports policy. We've got the private sector desperately keen to build runways at no public cost. And we are trying to find reasons to build High Speed 2, which will be publicly hugely expensive and has an extraordinarily low benefit cost ratio on some fairly dubious assumptions and probably worse than it looks. Uh, so. The message is quite straightforward. If the Treasury just allocated funds to investment where the benefit-cost ratios properly accounting for all the social costs and benefits are highest, uh, then we wouldn't be choosing these programs on a whim and a prayer. Uh, we would be allocating it where they would actually improve the productivity of the economy. <coughs> um, what are the challenges holding back growth-enhancing investments? Um, and I've started off by saying I think one of the killers is a lack of a proper, sensible form of accounting in the public sector that allows the Treasury to cut costs regardless of whether they're investment or current costs and to raise revenue regardless of whether they're <coughs> through taxes or charges, which are covert taxes. Um, we have a failed planning system. Uh, we keep changing it. Uh, we keep on being on the point of getting to the uh, sensible decision and then there's a change of government and everything is thrown out. The new localism clearly doesn't help on getting strategic investment in infrastructure which is more than local off the ground. Um, I, I think we have um, a, a land planning policy uh, which is totally perverse but politically extraordinarily difficult to change because it would require the haves giving up money to the have-nots and that's never been a politically viable strategy. Uh, so, um, what can we do to try and address the specific problem of transport? I think energy has the big advantage that it's either a regulated monopoly and therefore can charge whatever is needed to build the investment, or it's in the private sector and we have to put in place the necessary inducements which we're finally getting around to doing in the electricity market reform. Um, water is a very good example where by privatising it and regulating it we could do proper budgetary accounting and we could on the basis of a guaranteed revenue stream raise cheap public cheap finance to invest uh, so the model for the road system is quite simple if you create a regulatory asset base you levy road charges that would produce a revenue stream over an investment cycle in roads is 30 years, not one year. 
uh, than you could do as New Zealand has done, um, radically transform the way in which we plan the road infrastructure. Uh, if not privatise it, which I don't think makes sense, uh, at least learn the lessons of good regulatory practice from privatised monopolies. Uh, so, um, there we are. Very good. And I think they accuse you of being vague. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, the, it, it'll, it's sort of recorded and made available on, uh, on, the, on, on the internet, but if there's any uh, notes around what you said... Well, I, I, as I've said, I've, I've um, submitted pretty much the notes that I've used to give this. Very, very clear and strong. So thank you very much. So now, um, Bridget, we, we move to the private sector, of course, all three of you have all kinds of uh, interactions and experiences, so I don't want to overdo the classification, Bridget, you're very welcome and thank you very much for sparing, sparing your time. You not only chair of founded Volterra Partners, but also non-executive director of uh, Network, Network Rail. So Bridget, welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to, to talk to you today. Um, I, I think I should start by saying I agree with about 50% of what David said very strongly and disagree equally strongly with the remaining 50%. <laughs> so um, you'll, the challenge is for you to work out which bits are which, but I'll try and make it fairly clear. There's, there's no tradition of an LSE of dwelling on agreement. <laughs> I realise that. I want to start by, by agreeing about the importance of finance and balance sheets, and I'm going to say a little bit more about that than, than David did, and I'll come back to that in a little bit later. Firstly, just on the question of does infrastructure matter, is there enough, you know, why do we have this stuff, um, and the difficulties of measuring it, and, and I want to, two points here. One is, I think, that this is, infrastructure is necessary but not sufficient, and that's one of the reasons why it's difficult to um, measure the, um, the, the, its contribution. Without an infrastructure, you haven't got an economy. So, at that point, you know, it's kind of a bit of a no-brainer, no infrastructure, no economy. But what the returns are to an individual piece of infrastructure is a very different proposition. And in particular, uh, I think it's about the flexibility of infrastructure and the capacity beyond your immediate needs. And I also want to come back to that point a little bit later too. So an anecdote to illustrate that is in the last 40 years, London <coughs> lost a million uh, manufacturing jobs and created over a million jobs in services. The location of these jobs was different. So the manufacturing jobs were spread around the outer London area, particularly around the north and south circulars and out on the radial routes from the 1930s indeed onwards. Whereas the services jobs with which they've been replaced are much more centrally located and generate the benefits of agglomeration which David talked about, which I uh, agree are very important to cities about, about how you get together. What made that transition possible was that there was enough spare capacity in the Victorian and later, later investments in transport that you could move a million people from working around the North and South Circulars into getting on a, a train, and an underground train or a bus, and coming into the centre of London. It creaked, it heaved, but um, 
it creaked and it heaved, but it made it possible. And it made it possible to keep it going for long enough until newer investments, such as the Jubilee Line extension and now Crossrail, which we finally won the case for, come on stream. So there are two parts of that story. One is the necessity of the infrastructure, but secondarily, secondarily about, the, about spare capacity. And I think as economists, we deal with questions of spare capacity and the need for spare capacity and flexibility and capacity rather badly. They don't appear in the models. So, for example, um, in debating with, at Network Rail and with the Office for Rail Regulation, we're always being told we need to operate on the efficiency frontier before you can think about additional capacity. That is not actually a formulation which makes much sense to the engineers who actually run the system. They see these things in a much more three-dimensional um, context than economists tend to. So there's the, you know, the, the language effectively crosses over. Uh, and, and makes it very difficult to, to focus on the issues in which you might be most interested. So both connectivity and energy are key, are the, probably the most key elements of that infrastructure. Energy because without energy you die and, 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 uh, and Stephen dealt with all of that and indeed the additional energy for reproduction, investment, trade and so on. And the connectivity which makes trade possible. And again, we know that trade and an trade growth and economic growth are over the long term strongly correlated. So those two elements are the key bits. And indeed, I agree with my, my colleagues here that we have been underinvested in these. In transport, we're 34th on the global competitiveness index. But it's in particular, I think, that it's that need for flexibility and the need to be able to reinvest to facilitate structural change as the economy changes that is the thing that we find most difficult. It's not so long ago that you could read on the Department for Transport website that we are an advanced economy and therefore all transport is, changes are marginal. We've got all the transport infrastructure that we need. All the rest of it is about welfare changes and making things a bit better for people. So let's ha I have to say it's not there anymore. In fact, I went to look the other day to pin down the reference because I had it written down but wanted to, to, to support the reference. And, and I'm glad to say that has no long, is no longer there. But it comes from a mindset which moves me into the places where I, I actually disagree quite violently with David, which is how we can trust our cost-benefit analysis. Because that's what I think that we're doing badly, and that is why we have been underinvested in infrastructure. Because we thought we could do, we could capture these welfare changes and think about it entirely in welfare terms. When I was building the case for Crossrail, the key argument that we had, and which gave rise, rise to the Eddington report, which uh, which David described, was indeed a good piece of work, and was a follow-on from the work that we did for Crossrail. The whole debate. Was became a quite an arcane debate about the extent to which a welfare uh, welfare change and an economic change could be held to be equal. Under circumstances of perfect competition, when all of the assumptions of perfect competition hold, then they can be held to be equal. Unfortunately, none of us have ever observed that in the real world. And then the question, therefore, you, you get bogged down in these sort of very weird debates about the extent to which the value of time that you have measured is the same as the value of the output that could be made with that time if, it, if, they, if the thing was transferred one into the other. Agglomeration then became the most, in core, the most important part of that debate 
because agglomeration was recognised on all sides not to be captured. So that was suddenly, and everybody could agree on, that this effect of one person's activity on another person's activity was not being captured in the static welfare analysis. And so the extent to which that Marshallian analysis of thoughts uh, in the air, the ability to innovate, making more effective and larger labour markets, knowledge transfer, all of which was described by Marshall back in the 1890s, the extent to which that existed, it was not being captured by that analysis. And, and so that became part of the key uh, element in the building block of the case of Crossrail and the reason why we now have two enormous um, tunnel boring machines, one named after one named Phyllis after the lady who invented the A to Z and one named Ada after Ada Lovelace, and I'm sure you all know who she is, was, um, are, are creating the tunnels which will make that railway possible. And my best case guess of the economic benefits, the GDP benefits actually, so forget the welfare numbers, thinking about jobs facilitated, additional productivity from those jobs by making it possible to deliver, when the system fills up again, an extra 70 or 80,000 people into the centre of London. On all the agreed assumptions, that's about 70 billion pounds. For the cash cost, at 70 billion net present value for a, for a net present value cost of around six to seven and a cash cost of 16. So on any grounds that looks like a good payback uh, and indeed the way that I was looking at this is to think about well how much of this is paid for by charges, by fees, the, the, the amount that people spend when they get on the railway and effectively that covers all of the running costs and quite a chunk of the capital but not all. But if you think about the taxes that you're raising on the remaining output, and we had arguments about what the size of that tax wedge and which bits were additional and which, which weren't, which again became quite arcane, then it was very easy to think that you would pay for it in cash terms without having to worry about non-monetized benefits, in other words. Entirely monetary analysis, then worry afterwards about the non-monetary side of it. So I think that the... The way that we have undertaken this cost-benefit analysis and the way that we've thought about it has actually undermined the investment case by thinking of it in, in a strictly welfare term and thinking and, and, and worrying about stated preference studies and how you think about the value of time and so on, rather than first of all focusing on what that economic benefit and economic necessity might be. And equally, because cost-benefit analysis in those sorts of models tends to think in equilibrium static terms where again the value of spare capacity has, it has no value the ability to create that flexibility has no value and where the, thought, the, the time frame over which something happens tends to be ignored so you compare all the transport models that people use in making these analyses are all cross section there's no time in them at all you have an analysis of this is how the network works. You solve it. You do some cost minimization. You solve that model for the um, for the network. Normally, it doesn't quite deliver, so you add a vector of, um, of adjustments in, and then you change the network and you see how people are then going to use it. And for a given number of trips, what the time savings will be. That is why we have a case for high speed two, which I agree is madness, which is based on saving 20 minutes on the time to Birmingham. That's not actually what the case for High Speed 2 should or indeed really is about. And indeed, if you listen to cabinet ministers, it's not what they'll say it's about. What it's really about 
is in fact on the route to Birmingham, it's about capacity. So it's about the number of trips that you can have and the value of those trips. Um, because we're running out of room on the West Coast Main Line, we can't get any more trains on it. People want more trains, people want to travel. We can't do it, we can't maintain the track, can't get on it as it is to maintain the track properly. But it's equally about increasing the connectivity between cities, particularly Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, Glasgow, Edinburgh, in order to generate the capacity to improve their economic performance instead of sucking everybody down south. Saving 20 minutes on the road to Birmingham merely makes Birmingham a commuter city, and what is the value of that? There is a little bit of a value because it improves the agglomeration effect inside London, but that is not why we should be spending uh, 17 billion of public money. So again, I think that the way we've done these things has undermined the, the way that we should be thinking about them by thinking about them in an, in an equilibrium cost-benefit sense rather than the dynamics of how they might interact with an economy and improve the chances, indeed, of getting strong economic growth. It, but it is improve the chances. Um, in many of these, uh, again, it comes back to the planning system, which also, I agree, has been at least broke. I am optimistic about some aspects of this. The, the degrees of certainty which planners require before they are prepared to support an investment means that it's extremely difficult to, to, to get agreement to things which have uncertainties attached to them. So they want you to say, you guarantee that a piece of infrastructure will deliver jobs. And in fact, since jobs come over time and from private sector investors and so on and so forth, in fact, it's, um, if you're going to be honest, you can't really say that you're going to guarantee to deliver jobs. And that's certainly a problem in the, uh, that I've come across in doing planning inquiries. Thames Gateway Bridge is the one that springs most readily to mind, which was a, not a pleasant experience trying to, to justify something which for most people seemed extremely obvious, that a road, an additional river crossing, would to increase connectivity, increase the, um, the viability of places uh, out east uh, and improve the economy. But, um, as we've said, proving the, um, the value of a piece of infrastructure is very much more difficult. But I want just to end on a note of optimism here. I think that we have moved forward quite considerably in the way that we make these cases. I think that the, um, the way that, it, although the, if you like, the, the formal case for High Speed 2, I think, is flawed, nonetheless, there's quite a lot of other analysis that's been done out there to look at the, the benefits of, of intercity connectivity and, and the way that that can improve. I think that the Planning Act 2008 and the associated national policy statements and how they develop is going to be incredibly important and the way in which we can get over some of these hoops. The one for nuclear is really the only one that's properly operational as yet, but it does say essentially there is an agreed policy which says if you come forward with a proposal for a power station, nuclear power station in this location, you're effectively through the first hoops of the planning system. Not completely ground down yet, and, and there's obviously some evolution of this to go. And I think that the, the way that we can deal with the aviation issue is around the development of a national policy statement, which can then say these are the places where we think runways can be uh, developed. It's not entirely a private sector matter because it's not good enough to have a runway, you have to get the people in and out. And the problem for the third runway was indeed the amount of public sector investment that it would have taken to 
decrease the number of people that you can deliver to Heathrow, and that was the basis of the, the case, one, one of the bases of the case on the judicial review. So I am optimistic that we've got some ways forward on this. I'm convinced that um, we need the infrastructure, as I think my colleagues are, but I think we've still got a way to go on the evaluation mechanisms. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Bridget, and um, thank you very much for sharing the direct experience with us on um, looking closely at, at these issues. Um, for transparency, I, I should declare that when I was uh, in the Treasury, I, I led the academic friends of Eddington, and we convened a group that uh, advised the uh, Rod Eddington on people on, on the work right through and um, uh, so I share your view it was rather a good report <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what um, I'd like to do now is to go through the panel's questions but we should um, try to do this in a way that stimulates discussion including you relating your ideas to each other although David and Bridget dominating the rest of the hour with an argument about the technicalities of social cost benefit analysis is probably not the most productive way of uh, using using our time, although I don't want to rule out the questions on on that. Um, shall we just go from Richard this way? Is that, is that all right? Okay. Um, I, I wondered if I could ask about a, a, a political risk, uh, particularly on uh, energy uh, infrastructure. Um, one scene, and whatever it is, 100 conservative backbenchers making their voices clear on offshore wind. One scene, the Treasury sort of baring its teeth at the fourth carbon budget. And I guess that if you're planning major investment in these very large projects, uh, the political risk will be substantial. What ways are there for mitigating this risk? Is a green investment bank uh, a sensible or a necessary? Institution to make it actually possible for private sector funding to flow into this area uh, absent a carbon price very much higher and more predictable than what we're going to have. Should we go through and collect the questions in the first round and, and then perhaps you can respond? Well, I'll just ask uh, two very quick questions. One is um, Guys, we talked a lot about uh, energy and transportation. Um, do you have any thoughts about uh, communication technology, information technology? Where, where are we? How are we doing, and, and where are we going uh, with that? And the other one is um, a couple of you have mentioned uh, the planning system as a, in some instances at least as an obstacle to um, progress, especially in transportation. I gather. Um, what changes to the planning system do you think would be? Uh, both uh, politically feasible and helpful for that dimension. And I, I wanted to ask a question about the relationship between the uh, cost-benefit analyses, uh, however done, and uh, the overall um, framework describing the energy system, the electricity system, the transport system, and so on. Because what we did say in Eddington is that uh, it is very important to do the um, cost-benefit analysis uh, carefully. And that points to um, investing where congestion is, uh, in whichever context, is the most severe. So it points to, as it were, uh, a big part of the story in 
to be uh, looked at, analysed, decided in terms of um, a close look at uh, where the pinches are. And that fits with the story of infrastructure uh, being a constraint on growth, or as David expressed it, having a, a low elasticity of substitution with other activities in the economy. But there's another part of what Eddington said, which I think has been reflected in your contributions as well, which is that um, you can do this kind of analysis only in the context of where you think the economy and the energy electricity transport system is going. Um, uh, that is a basic piece of microeconomics that the marginal anything depends on where you are. And if in all these things you're looking out 20, 30, 40 years, the marginal valuation of anything that you're looking at has to depend on where you think you're going. So I, I wondered if you could take those ideas a bit further on the way in which the careful economic micro at the project level fits with a bigger sectoral and macro story of where the economy uh, is going. I fear that you may have question overload syndrome <laughs> starting at this point, but uh, I did the show as We'll put everything on the table, and then if you forget, we'll ask you again. Okay, so I have two questions. The first takes off from Richard's point, and um, it's on the politics of all this. So there's, there's some issues over how the right way to do cost-benefit analysis is, and you know, static and dynamic, and the corporation and so on. But my impression from David's points and the Eddington issues is there were, there were a number of projects which were so clear... <laughs> Oh, no matter how you cut things, you can also say you disagree with this, but that it seemed that you know, it was almost a no-brainer to do. So in that case, well, why hasn't it happened? And the answer must be to the political constraints over that not happening. So given that, you know, what can be done to relieve those political constraints? So Richard mentioned an investment bank. Would another way, would, you know, uh, uh, this is a broader question for us, an institutional reform be some way of uh, shielding or mitigating political pressure the same way the OBR does forecasting, the bank community interest rates, in terms of the cost-benefit analysis of infrastructure projects. So, think about that. The other one, I mean, there's a consensus, which I, I think this may be a big theme of our report, so let me impress you on it, over uh, accountancy for investment issues. And I, I, I think there's a consensus that over the way we do this is extremely bad, and this is leading to lots of dysfunctional decisions, both in the short term, <coughs> right now, as the IMF pointed out yesterday, but also in the longer run. <coughs> so I, I guess um, if we want to change that, how do we change that? Because um, do, do, does that, can the UK do it by itself, just by fear? We are, you know, obviously there was uh, international comparisons that other countries do, so maybe we have to do this through Eurostat or through the IMF. How do we, to make these changes, these necessary changes to accounting properly, how can we get that done? How can we as a commission influence getting that done better? So, so without scaling the financial markets, I'll leave the psychology to the psychologists. <laughs> uh, I'd just like to add one footnote to John's question about accounting and the very important points that David 
raised um, about assets and depreciation and so on. And that's the treatment in the public accounts of uh, guarantees. Because for the most part, guarantees go straight on to the uh, public expenditure at full value of the guarantee, as if it was absolutely definite that it would be drawn. And that can, in a world dominated by particular conventions of accounting in the public sector, can actually have a very big uh, influence. And that means that a lot of things that go wrong, a lot of good things that don't happen, are not simply down to political ineptitude or spellduggery or pressures or political economy. It's also we may, in our public decision making and our civil service, be going about things in the wrong way. How would you, how would you like to sequence and you can go however you like? Oh, I'm always happy to jump in. <laughs> <laughs> we jump in at the leave, do leave a chance for your friends on the other side. Um, and, and this in natural allocation. So the political risk for energy investment is quite straightforward. It's recognised in the EMR. It has to be addressed by contractual arrangements which are legally enforceable because you couldn't trust a word any government said for more than a week. Um, ICT, I will leave others to say something about. Um, I don't have any expertise in that area. Planning is an obstacle the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act is the last vestige of Soviet planning in the Western world. It says you cannot do anything unless you're given explicit permission to do it. And as Bridget has said, it's bloody hard to prove beyond a shadow of doubt that what you want to do is going to be beneficial for absolutely everything, including the ferry critters. So um, the obvious answer is... You have a planning system which says you can't do certain things in certain places because we want to protect them, but otherwise the presumption is that you can. Uh, and that may be going a bit far, but that seems to me the, the spirit behind the transition in Central Europe, which we all think is a jolly good thing, and it's about time we um, remove the vestiges of Soviet control in this country. Um, the cost-benefit issue... Um, when I listened to Bridget, all I could hear her saying was, we did a cost-benefit analysis of Crossrail, and it came out John well. Um, of course, you have to take two things into account. The fact that you may not be in equilibrium, and in transport, we're massively not in equilibrium, and you have to think how we're going to evolve towards it, uh, and you have to include, to the best you can, all of these... Um, external benefits, but as John said, in some cases it's so blatantly obvious that and particularly if you're uh, reasonably confident that the benefits are positive and not negative, um, that you should go ahead. Um, and, and next point, that you can't do a cost-benefit analysis without, for a really long-lived piece of infrastructure, having some sense of where the economy is going to be over the life of that infrastructure because that determines what it's going to be worth. Um, I, I would observe that transmission towers can be extraordinarily easily moved and in that sense these are not seriously irreversible investments and a wind farm lasts for 20 years and if you don't like it after 20 years you could move it whereas if you build a road as the Romans did uh, probably um, two millennia later there's still something left so the irreversibility aspect is very important um, and um, having said that, transmission can be moved. Uh, clearly, investment decisions in transmission have to be guided with 
what sort of an electricity system we think we will need over the next 30 years, and transmission systems are in that sense very durable. Um, and there has been a lot of discussion about whether we're moving to a world of totally decentralised local generation, in which case we don't need it, which I think is nonsense, or whether we really have to wire up the Scottish Highlands to bring very expensive wind all the way down to London, uh, which we probably will do. Um, and, and what better than cost-benefit analysis having some scenarios to deal with it? It's not a perfect science. But um, the idea that there's some alternative than systematic rational calculations of what we can quantify uh, seems to be wholly irresponsible. Um, uh, why don't we do blindingly, obviously, no-brainer investment decisions? Um, and the usual thing is fear of complaints. Uh, and then the question is, well, why don't we think more constructively about why people complain and what can be done about it? Uh, I think the French are much more pragmatic in when they think that they have an infrastructure that may not be wholly approved of, like a nuclear power station. Uh, they ask uh, municipalities, who would like to bid for what they would need to have in order to have this located nearby where they are? Um, and once you get a bidding war going, um, um, and it's just a question of how many municipal swimming pools and things you need to hand over, um, the uh, answer usually comes out to be pretty strongly positive. Um, so thinking very carefully about who is damaged and what can be done to alleviate that it seems to me very obvious and something that's completely neglected because we have a, a rules-based rather than a pragmatic approach to planning. If it's right, it's good. If it's opposed, it must be bad. And I would take as a very good example um, a project called Cambridge Futures, which we published in the Foresight Land Use Futures project, um, in which the population of Cambridge was um, confronted with the evident fact that we are congested and growing and house prices are very high and it's all very problematic. And they were given eight possible scenarios about how the region might develop. And they were scenarios involving giving up some green belt here in exchange for having more green land somewhere else and having some building here and releasing some space for access to the countryside there. So these were packages, and when you look at a package, you begin to see that you can offset the damage done by some benefits elsewhere. And the uh, public consultation was hugely enthusiastic and it was pretty clear about what sort of projects they wanted and they were actually keen on green swaps where giving up some so-called green land which is just derelict land and inaccessible anyway for really useful green land somewhere else uh, made a great deal of sense so I think we just think much more carefully about how we persuade people to do we think things which are clearly in the national interest and um, that just has to be uh, a way of Making, um, <coughs> thinking more about parental improvements rather than um, uh, net gains. Do you at least have had to institutionalise that? You know, like that sounds right, but do you have any further thoughts on how? Well, it comes back to what's wrong with the local localism debate on planning. If you look at each planning project all by itself, as opposed to a structure plan which is in the trouble to work area, um, <coughs> then of course there is always somebody who doesn't like a particular project because there's always somebody who's harmed. But if you say this is part of a, a range of things which are um, offsetting benefits elsewhere, uh, and if you can institutionalise that, um, and if you can also align, as we don't, at the local public finance level incentives and revenues and costs 
a little bit more intelligently, uh, then, then there are things that can be done. I mean, we start off with such a dysfunctional system of local public finance that it's hardly surprising that we don't do sensible things. Uh, and it's hardly surprising that people complain about that. Um, but that would take us quite a long way afield. I'm very so keen let to, let, to let Bridget and Stephen, we have to stop at four o'clock and it would be good to have uh, some questions um, from the audience as well. Uh, but thanks very much. Thank you, uh, thank you, David. Um, the, uh, Stephen and Bridget, how would you like to allocate? I'm happy to. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I think I'd like to start with something around what is it we're holding constant here? Because I think a lot of the, the sorts of uh, debate that we're having are around the problem of deciding what you're holding constant. So, for example, you can take a, uh, take a view on the e e potential evolution of the economy, and then you say, what is the infrastructure I might need to make that possible? But then, in fact, that evolution is itself affected by the availability of the infrastructure. So the problem is to you end up, if you're not careful, with a world in which you're trying to change everything. And the difficulty, therefore, I think, is to, is to create for ourselves uh, a framework which is accepted and which people are able to debate or feel that they've got enough um, information about to debate, to give yourself a handle at that, at that very high and strategic level where you're not actually talking about individual projects, but that you then get some sense of the kind of, of infrastructure changes that you want to make. And one of the things, in once you begin to think like that, actually... It's very difficult to think in marginal terms because most of these changes will not be marginal and indeed marginal changes won't be noticed by most people. So I think again there's a disconnect there between what, if you like, the normal decision makers feel about the way that, that business operates or the decisions are made and that the way economists tend to, to think about them. Where certainly, again, one of the sort of arcane debates in cost-benefit analysis in transport is the value of small changes in time savings which can be very substantial when you add them up across millions of people, but would anybody ever have noticed? Whereas if you think about reliability, then that's a very different, you know, people do notice reliability um, over time quite a lot. So the ability then to, to think in a time series sense, um, non-marginal, to be clear about what it is, what the assumptions are, what is it you've held constant in, in making this debate, I think would then go some way to addressing the political question because it would create a terms of debate. One of the things that I think happens in infrastructure and infrastructure evaluation is that there's a kind of very technical, I'm not saying cost-benefit analysis is wrong, I'm just saying it's the way that we're doing it and the way we're presenting it which, is, which uh, needs to be challenged. That, so there's an arcane piece of stuff and, and technical and pointy-headed people over here and there's politicians over there and there's no engagement between them because the politicians don't understand what's happening over here and the professionals don't put it in a language which, which the politicians can then use, if you like, in dealing with the wider public. So there's a, there's a piece of engagement which would then help you, I think, to address some of the, the, the political risk. And the final thing in that whole story, and it comes back, I think, probably to also the, the um, communications stuff. I do think communications infrastructure is very important. Uh, uh, as indeed other forms of infrastructure, and the bit that the bit that's missing that we sort of keep tripping into all of us, but don't um, perhaps address carefully enough, is who is paying, who pays back. So we talk about taking two billion pounds out of pension funds, but pension funds are going to want to return on that. We've got to put something back into the pension fund, otherwise, you know, where are people's pensions at the end of the day? So who is going to pay this back, and how? 
and therefore the division between whether the users are paying, the general public is paying, the, um, the wider, wider beneficiaries, um, so um, tax increment financing, for example, is one way of thinking about that, which we've been thinking about for the Northern Line extension at Battersea. The idea that uh, you take the rates, which would then be collected on development, which is built as a result of being able to push more people into the area with the tube station, take some of those extra rates in order to pay back the debt. That then takes us into the accounting question of where that sits on a, on a public sector balance sheet and does it matter where it sits on the public sector balance sheets. None of us, I don't think, are accountants, so probably we're not the right person to ask direct accounting questions, but certainly the way that it is done on the accounts definitely has implications for incentives and the, the, the how you can measure returns. Uh, and you know, I see this coming across the desk at, at Network Rail all the time. We've got a regulated asset base. I mean, how do you value all those civil structures and the, the, you know, the value of the, um, uh, the lines coming out of Victoria, for example? But you know, somebody's got a number there. Essentially, it's a pretty circular calculation based on the sorts of returns that you might want to have that would then pay enough money back that you could then generate the, in the debt. So out of that, you somehow you go backwards into getting an asset valuation. So it's pretty um, odd way of getting an asset valuation. But having got it, of course, it then drives behaviours, uh, and not in a marginal way either. So I think it's, it's about having clarity of assumptions. It's about being able to debate those in, or generate a, uh, forms of language in which we can debate those across the political and the, and the professional divide. And from that, thinking carefully about who is paying back the investment and how. I'll stop at that point. Stephen, a chance. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Okay. Just to pick up on three other questions. Firstly, to um, on Richard's point about political risk, and just to reiterate um, David's reply, which is that the contracts for different structure in electricity market reform is essentially compensating for the fact that you can't perfectly pre-commit, um, for example, on the carbon price floor and to shape expectations about the, the returns and low carbon generation through um, a credible policy pre-commitment. So embedding, um, uh, uh, using contracts to compensate for, for that um, imperfect credibility uh, pre-commitment is, I think, the response to that. Um, on Nick's point about how do you blend the big picture macro uh, together with the bottom-up microanalysis. Um, and here, I think that the framework that we have on the energy side is actually quite useful. So the, um, the Climate Change Act, um, the long-run target for decarbonization of the economy, and the exercise of setting the carbon budgets is actually quite useful in forcing you to think through the non-discrete changes that are required on both the energy supply side and the energy demand side of the, the market. And what range of technologies need to come forward in order to deliver these non-discrete changes? And of course, one of the strong implications of that type of exercise um, is the high degree of technology uncertainty that you face in trying to deliver this um, uh, profound long-run change. And that is very useful in informing your strategy, particularly with respect to technology acceleration 
and why you would want to pursue, for example, a diversified approach to the acceleration of a range of low-carbon mm -hmm. technologies. Um, and to John's question on the um, easing the political constraints, and here I think it's important to, um, whenever you, from an energy system perspective, you're driving deep structural change in the way in which we produce and use energy over a long sweep of time. And here the key is making sure that the essentially the winners outweigh the losers. And to um, from that deep transformation in, in the economy. And here again, I think the key is to have a, a very sensible technology strategy that is credibly based in a realistic understanding of which sectors um, within the economy are likely to, to prosper through this deep structural change and also have a strategy towards mitigating the adjustments costs in those sectors that are likely to be challenged by this process. Is that the same thing as saying, as my point, that you've got to be clear what you're holding constant when you're thinking about the analysis, because you're saying deep structural change. There's fewer things being held constant then as you're moving forward. Yes, you're exploring the dimensions of, of you're exploring all dimensions of change in the system, yeah. so it's, it's not a a marginal analysis at all. It's working back from a fundamentally different endpoint for the energy yeah. system and tracing its implications back to um, the types of actions that you need to be taken today. And that type of exercise, I think, points you very clearly towards the type of technology strategy that you're pursuing. Because one thing that Eddington concluded is that small projects are generally better than large projects. But I suspect one of the reasons for that conclusion was that they're much easier to analyze. They're much easier to get. I mean, it's well, much harder to get the... Uh, of size and benefit-cost ratio of Eddington's graphs. Yeah, I, I, my memory well. of it is a little while since we finished it, and I haven't reread it, is that uh, the key point was to look closely at the micro, but set it in the context of the bigger sectoral mm. stories. Uh, so it's very much in favor of uh, local cost-benefit analysis in, in, in the analytically local uh, sense. But we did try very hard to, to push the thing which uh, Stephen has just emphasized. And I wouldn't call the having a, a strategic, medium to long-term view and concentrating on the micro in that context as actually holding things constant. The, the story is how those two things interact with each other. So a good set of local decisions should be bumping up the overall sectoral story, but you couldn't actually look at the local yeah. decisions unless you started with some some sectoral story. Um, so when you're doing one part of the analysis, you are holding the other part constant. But the outcome of this thing conducted well is not to hold either of them constant, but to push them, push them both. Um, but we've actually, all of us here, spent much of our life on the theoretical detail of the uh, cost-benefit analysis. It was uh, certainly a big part of David and my misspent years, um, and we don't want to bang on about that too much. Um, the, I'd like to um, ask the audience, and then we'll come back to the, um, uh, the panel, if that's all right. Is that okay? Sure. We'll come back again through the panel, but let's take just uh, 10 or 15 minutes with uh, to and fro um, with uh, our guests. Audience is not the right word, please excuse me, for our guests.
who would like to ask a question? institutional arrangements. I just wonder if there's any lessons from uh, one form of infrastructure that could apply to others, or indeed if there's any kind of meta-institution that might sit over above it, like a national infrastructure bank or other things that have been suggested. Thank you. Um, can we just take one or two more and then go back to So, um, obviously, the way in which government government departments take decisions are fundamentally different than, for example, how um, decisions are taken in the private sector. So, just for clarity of purpose, um, I previously worked for Royal Dutch Shell for uh, for a number of years, and so have some experience with how uh, decisions are taken in the corporate world. And of course, the key difference is the the interplay between the political process and the um, and the um, the process through the civil service by which the the evidence and the policy proposals are are developed. Um, so obviously, the the way in which decisions are taken are are different. The internal governance processes within a, a government department are are somewhat different from the similar internal governance processes in in the private sector. Um, but I think that there are a number of important similarities, and so one of the uh, one of the key similarities, I think, is the strong focus on having the right evidence base for your decisions. And so, one of my one of the the positive insights from my experience in the private sector was the extent to which the evidence being developed for the basis of an investment decision is, um, is developed in quite a rigorous and robust way and that there's a serious process of internal challenge um, in getting to a final investment decision. And of course, there, there are similar processes in, in a government department, but also you have the, the overlay of, of the political considerations and the political objectives of your ministers and department. And so that's the added dimension. Um, it's obviously a very understandable added dimension. Uh, but I think that there, um, it adds a complication, but it, uh, um, 
a necessary complication, but I don't think it fundamentally derails rational decision making. So, um, but the systems adapt to accommodate that uh, that particular role. Um, the on the overarching framework for for infrastructure, I would say that that's um, I'd be reluctant to kind of go down that route. One of my I think experiences, just having been in deck for about a year, is is the importance of having deep sectoral knowledge, expertise, understanding as you're developing your policies, and make sure that you're um, congruent with the way in which the your commercial counterparties operate. And I think having that depth of expertise on a sector by sector basis is is quite important for the overall effectiveness and coherence of your, your policies. Um, and I would have thought that that consideration would take precedence over the need for an overarching, coherent approach to, to infrastructure. I think that there are strong gains to be had from um, sectoral specialization. Uh, let me pick up immediately on that, because it, it touches on an issue of what can we learn from successful um, infrastructure management uh, for the unsuccessful sectors. And if you look at the successful ones, where we have private, monopoly, regulated infrastructure, water, um, gas, electricity grids, it's fairly straightforward. You have a regulatory agency which is knowledgeable, durable, independent, and expert. And if we look at ministries, I hate to say it, but then none of the above. And so um, letting ministries run infrastructure, as with the Department for Transport, is a recipe for chaos, disaster, and inefficiency. Um, and it touches on that issue that we, we left unanswered about um, uh, how, how do we get the public accounting in a more uh, sort of satisfactory way? Can you have socialism in one country or public accounting <laughs> properly done in one country? Uh, and, the, and the answer is yes, and it addresses the question of how do you not frighten the markets? Um, let's face it, the, the money doesn't have very many places to go, and if they could find a country which managed its public accounts intelligently and sensibly and in a way more like a commercial business, I suspect that we would be doing exactly the opposite of frightening the money away. Uh, so I think we could go it alone. We would set an example. I don't think we should bother with Eurostat. Um, and um, just get on and do it. It just makes sense, and, and so we should do it. Uh, so um, I'll leave behind my argument for how you um, create a sensible infrastructure structure for roads. Uh, in mind the points that I've just made rather than go at length on it now. I think the big difference between these different sectors, industries, is the extent to which they are being paid for by their users or not. So if you think about ICT, for example, um, there are some debates around extension into rural broadband and so on which might require some subsidy, but essentially most of it is relatively easily paid for and invested in by companies who are going to recoup those charges from the people who are using them. Uh, and the regulation comes in because there's a, a monopoly element to that provision. And indeed, there are lots of independent companies who come in and, and do that as well um, on the basis of, of the regulation of the wholesale charges. And that's a system which has evolved over the last, what, 20 years and seems to, to work quite well. And equally has worked quite well in electricity, 
and gas. Water is a slightly different, um, the local monopoly problem has been maintained in water, so it operates rather differently. But even there, you've got a range of different kinds of private sector companies who have come in, and that in itself actually is one of the ways in which regulators get challenged, because they're faced with companies who have different financial structures, different um, people involved in them, different kinds of ways that they want to operate. So there's a kind of attention which is not just a monopoly operator and monopoly regulator, but there's actually a lot of other variation going on in there. The difference, therefore, is between those sorts of sectors and those where there's a public money involved. And then immediately ministers get involved because they are seeing themselves as the guardians of that public money. And that's true for rail. Of course, it's true for roads, where um, we don't charge people to drive on almost all of them. Uh, and therefore, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a public money provision. And as soon as you get that, you get a different kind of regulatory problem from the one where you've got essentially user charges financing back the, uh, the, 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 the investment. The other aspect which is, has to be distinguished, and this is particularly important, I think, at the moment in rail, is the, the operating cost and investment. So most of the subsidy into rail, not totally true in regional railways, but most of it is paying for new projects, electrification, all of these sorts of things where you've got big sums, uncertain returns, and essentially, I think over time we could, in fact, if we thought about that more carefully in the context of the accounting thing, we could see that as a guarantees problem, not a public finance problem. So I think there are perfectly sensible ways in which we could finance that with a bit of restructuring, if we saw it as it is necessary for public sector guarantees because the public sector is controlling the price of the product um, because some of it is being subsidised, some of it at any rate is sub subsidised at an operational end and all of it is controlled. And there isn't enough history to say how we do that successfully like we do now in, in electricity where private sector, invest private sector investors don't really expect the pricing problem to impinge upon their ability to get their returns back again. So there's sufficient confidence now in the way that that process is working. There isn't confidence in some of these other areas. So I think it's about who's provide, where that money is actually coming from, the extent of that subsidy, and therefore the way in which you can, um, you can see it as a monopoly regulator problem or a public subsidy problem. And that's the important distinction. Can I just add one point? Um, the tax revenue from road... Um, excise duty and from the fuel charges is about nine times as yeah. high as the current expenditure on roads. So the idea that roads don't cover their cost is purely, um, if you like, accounting, uh, yeah. inappropriate accounting for this and, and making explicit that we do or should properly charge for roads as we do for other infrastructure would solve that problem. And the other, the other point I should have added... Um, what regulators in um, water companies are able to do quite easily is benchmark each against the other, and the same with distribution yes. companies. Yes. More difficult when you've got a single enterprise like the um, Network Rail or the National Grid, and there you have to do international benchmarking, and that's the one thing the government's absolutely, totally hopeless about. Um, and uh, so, I mean, the British civil service is unbelievably inward-looking when it doesn't even know that Europe goes on, let alone the rest of the world. So when it comes to learning from what works and what we should be, what the uh, standards that we should meet are, uh, we're, we're sort of so behind the curve, it's not true. The, uh, now, um, I think 
what we should do is, because uh, we must finish at four, and I know that uh, John has to go um, at 10.2, um, if we could go back the other way through the um, people on this table, and uh, try to keep our questions short, so that um, I'm going to risk trying to sum up at five to four. Um, so let's take a 10 minutes or so, um, a bit over 10 minutes, with the last of our questions and the last of the answers. But I will also ask um, three of you, if I may, just before I try something up, is anything very brief you want to say um, that you haven't already said? Not summing up what you've already said, but anything brief you want to say that you haven't already uh, said. So, John, please. Okay, quick one. Um, Heathrow. Third runway, what do we think? How critical is that? Um, second, for Stephen, just the comments. You present a lot in, of these things in terms of extra jobs generated. I cannot see the economic rationale behind thinking of cost-benefit analysis or policies in terms of extra jobs generated, even though I see this all the time from politicians. That, is that just purely political stunts? <laughs> or is there some misguided economics behind that? Try multipliers. Two questions. Um, Dave, I shared your concern about um, the very rapid turnover in uh, civil service uh, appointments, meaning that corporate memory and expertise are a deep, deep problem. Many of us have seen it and experienced it, but I wondered if you are aware of detailed evidence on that which could help uh, reinforce that case. Uh, not simply that the turnover is very high, that evidence you can get, uh, but the way in which it uh, can lead to inexperienced bad decision making. Uh, maybe you just want to refer us to some things or to say we need that evidence or whatever. And the second thing is that. Um, Bridget, you've emphasised very strongly and, and surely rightly the importance of being able to see the returns, and Stephen, you did too, with some kind of confidence. It's a theme that's run right through, I think, and it seems to be a very important one. So, thought, further thoughts on um, how we can go about, or how we should be going about, boosting the confidence in the returns. You've already had some examples, but if there's something you'd like to stress on that. I, like Stephen, worked with EBRD for a while and I was on the advisory board um, shaping the Green Investment Bank and the point which we emphasised very strongly there was that the existence of the this institution in the consortium that's doing the finance does itself reduce political risk. The government seems to be empirically, at least it was in the EBRD, the governments of the countries more reliable in dealing with sectors in which the EBRD was invested than in other sectors. So even though it wasn't a formal guarantee, political risk was uh, thereby uh, reduced. So those are my two questions at the end. I just, I just got a little bit confused about the last uh, few exchanges on um, what's the cost of uh, the, the proper counting rules for public investments and the role of the private sector. So you made a case, uh, all of you made a case very convincingly, 
that the perceived budget constraint is, is really a bogus construct of uh, accounting rules that don't really make much economic sense, and that's both very convincing. On the other hand, you also seem to suggest that in most of the areas where the biggest bottlenecks are, there is a lot of scope for private sector uh, intervention and uh, proper regulate, properly regulated with uh, perhaps with some guaranteed prices, but something that doesn't seem to require large uh, amount of public money. So is the accounting issue just a, an academic point that you guys are making? Or where, 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 if, if this can be done by the private sector, why, why is this such a, such a big deal? Um, and more generally, I guess the question is, where would you, what, what, what are the general criteria for deciding when uh, you allow the private sector to, uh, to build the infrastructure and to charge the users, and when when do you uh, when do you have to do it uh, to the public sector? Uh, my question is about something we haven't touched on at all, and it may be because colleagues think it will come under another heading of the Commission's work, but it is about the capacity of the United Kingdom to manage projects uh, effectively on this scale. Uh, we all remember when it was th uh, three years ago the uh, construction problems on the big power plant in the northeast, and the Department of Trade <coughs> business did a study on it and found that productivity in the UK was about 25% less than in uh, similar workers in, in the US and in, in, in continental Europe. That we were spectacularly bad at uh, project management. The management was the main failure, but there was also serious skill shortages. So I think a question that the Commission needs to address either here or in some other spaces. Can we do this stuff? And if not, what are we going to do about it? So, um, if, if you could just, if you could just take a, take a, um, uh, a minute or two on, on those questions, and then we'll come back to any last observations you want to make, um, you know, which don't have to be immediately connected to any of the questions. So, why don't we go this way, Stephen? Okay, just um, beginning with uh, John's very pointed question about jobs. Um, so the point that I was making uh, in my presentation, it was clearly around gross job creation. Um, and it wasn't a statement about net job creation, which was implicit in your question. Um, the one point that I wanted to, that I was seeking to emphasize when discussing jobs was essentially the regional dimension. So if you think that the labor market um, doesn't function very well in its regional dimensions, then the point that I was making about the spatial distribution of investment in jobs associated with energy infrastructure I think is, is relevant, um, uh, a relevant consideration. So there was a slight nuance in how I presented the... Wouldn't that be also net jobs, though, Yes, but the more... Uh, essentially, the point is you have a greater likelihood of generating net jobs from gross job creation if the spatial distribution of the gross job creation is in areas of relatively high unemployment. So to spell out the implicit argument, that's essentially the, the, the point that I would like to make clear. Yeah. Regional so, strategy, this guy. Um, no, it's not a regional strategy. It's a consequence of the nature of the investment and the types of benefits that might be associated with it. Um, we're certainly not saying to regionally target your infrastructure investment with a job creation objective. Um, in terms of um, building confidence, I think this is particularly critical uh, 
with regard to, um, uh, and it's linked to innovation, so, um, and the development of, of new technologies. I think I agree with your point that this is uh, a potential useful role that the Green Investment Bank could play in, in risk sharing and risk mitigation and essentially government having some financial stake in, in the outcome of uh, investments in various frontiers of technology aimed at driving the green transformation. So I think that's a very useful device that complements the, um, the contract-based approach that is being used in the electricity sector under EMR. Um, and the final point that I'll make is actually in response to Richard's, which is the capacity to manage projects. Um, and I'd simply make the observation that project management skills are essentially a globally traded service, so it shouldn't be an um, impediment to the implementation of um, projects in the, in the UK, though it does historically seem to be an issue. Um, those questions are nicely complementary in the sense that the capacity to manage projects requires some competence which has to be based on continuing existence of the organisations that are going to do this. Uh, and what we lack in this country is the ability to do long-term finance for large infrastructure projects. So if we have annual budgeting, and if everybody knows that the first thing that will be cut uh, when things are politically tight is investment, uh, then there's no point in developing a world-class uh, construction and infrastructure development industry within this country. Uh, and we might as well do it where the infrastructure is actually being built. Uh, so I see these as two sides of the same um, problem. Um, the question of public versus private uh, funding that uh, Francesco raised, uh, again, I think is fairly straightforward. And you have to ask, if you were to charge the amount for the infrastructure that would cover the costs, would the way in which you were charging for it be sensible and efficient or distortionary? Uh, so let's take a very simple example of road tolls, uh, where <coughs> there are two models on offer. There is the insane system in which you build a large number of barricades and cause people to stop and hand over money on top of the petrol taxes they're already paying. Or there's the A1 with shadow tolls, uh, where you give a contract for 30 years to maintain the road and you pay them in proportion to the number of cars that are going to be using it. Uh, and that's a non-distortionary way of charging and collecting the money for the infrastructure. Uh, just as it's an insane arrangement in public finance terms to collect money for the public good of developing technologies and green um, energy by having a charge on electricity consumers in proportion to how much electricity they consume and on the industrial consumers of electricity as well. Uh, so there are good principles of public finance about how these things should be financed, and there are good principles of public finance about whether they should be in the public or the private sector, and we've been through all of that in the great discussion about the transition in Central Europe, so we don't need to rehash that. Um, on the question of um, uh, the third runway, I would be the last person to say, let's just decide on the basis of letters to the Times. Why not do a proper cost-benefit study but I am strongly persuaded that the hub benefits, which are quantifiable, are potentially enormous. And if the constraint is on 
the publicly provided infrastructure to access the airport, they can get on with it and do the analysis and see whether the whole thing makes sense. I was an, involved in a, a Dutch scheme to look and see whether Schiphol, which has five runways, uh, should be relocated to the uh, North Sea, the sort of uh, Dutch equivalent of Boris Island. Uh, and they did a cost-benefit analysis and said, this is completely insane, let's just develop the one we've got. So you may regret the decision that caused you to be locked into that particular trajectory, uh, but you are where you are, and you do the sensible analysis to see what you do to get yourself out of the hole. Thank you, David. Bridget? Um, projects and project management, uh, and indeed I think that links back into confidence in returns, in fact, because it's about being able to deliver the project for the cost that you, you started it on, and that feeds into the, are the returns going to be there as well? Um, one of the things I think is very interesting here is about how you define the project, because actually there are UK firms who are global leaders in project management. They just don't do it here. As, um, as David said, you know, there's lots of this stuff goes on elsewhere. If we take another aviation example, Chet Blackcock uh, Airport in Hong Kong, so British at the time, it was built, delivered on time, on budget, etc., etc., by British people, British firms. Um, and was it, in, it very effectively done, a very, very complicated project moving an entire airport. So it can be done, but what it can't be done with, it can't be done, however, if there's uncertainty about funding and there's uncertainty about profit, um, about project definition. And what we tend to do, particularly in public projects, is the scope keeps changing. And if, as soon as the scopes change, you've lost control of the whole thing uh, and it all goes very pear-shaped. And that is actually, so I think one of the reasons to, in, one of the ways to increase confidence in returns is to increase confidence in project specification, whether you're talking about an investment project or an operational project, and both of those would be important elements in that. And therefore, again, the more clearly you make your assumptions, the more transparent your analysis, the more focused it is on where the money is, the movements of the money, the more likely it is that you'll be able to get to that. Um, a point about, uh, on the aviation question. Um, I think this is where politics it cannot be avoided. So I've done some work around Boris Island. I mean, I agree that the going to the estuary is a more expensive option, but actually I think in the end, the third <coughs> runway is A, insufficient. It's a short runway. It doesn't, in fact, give you that much additional capacity. It certainly doesn't give you the five runways that Skitpole currently has. Uh, and Skitpole is now coming under pressure from resident, residents as well, who don't, who want to um, shrink it down at end night flights, all of these sorts of issues. I think, in the end, the, the more expensive option will turn out to be the only one which is politically feasible. And the question is, can we get, can, can we devise a technically and um, minimum cost solution? So it's what's the minimum cost solution to a political problem as much as an economic problem. Economically, I suspect the best place to put uh, our major airport would be Stansted. But I think, again, politically, that's probably going to turn out to be infeasible because there will be just too much. There are people live there, and people, in the end, will... Not as many. That's why Stansted is, is I think, the... the uh, absolutely, that's why Stansted is the best. I'm not sure... scenically challenged countryside. But not everybody agrees with that. This is the trouble. So this is a debate, however, which we need to... We definitely need to be moving forward on. And just finally, I can't remember when, where this actually came up, but on international comparisons and institutions, then we do have to be very careful to not to think that we're unique, but equally to understand the differences between different institutional arrangements and that not 
and that the activity of international benchmarking is very, very hard to do, particularly in these sorts of infrastructure areas where um, the degree of public involvement varies absolutely, you know, really dramatically. Identifying a balance sheet for Deutsche Bank, for example, is actually an extremely hard thing to do. Just that it's actually more transparent here than it is there. Very good. Could you take um, less than one minute each on any last remark? Not the summary of what you said, and anything you thought during the course that you would like to add. But, but very quickly, please. Stephen, not compulsory. Uh, simply just to re-emphasize one of the points that I made, which is that it's possible to transform the energy system and to grow at the same time, and that it requires, um, I think, a, a careful assessment of the policy framework, and um, uh, and so I'd like to leave that as a, a key point. Thank you, Stephen. David? I don't have anything to add. No, Bridget. I don't have anything to add either. Very good. Well, thank you, thank you so much for the um, very thoughtful and constructive, helpful um, contributions that, that you made. Um, here's a, one attempt at uh, summing up. At the bigger, broader, big picture level, um, infrastructure can indeed be a major constraint on growth. But um, running too far ahead of where the economy might go um, risks uh, wasting resources and can't necessarily give you all that much. Um, huge uh, motorways to um, southern Spain don't necessarily add very much to the rate of growth because there's not much demand for the traffic. So that story is a very important one, it seems to me, and it leads you to think through the problems in terms of identification of major constraints on growth. And I think all three of our um, uh, guests here on, on, on the platform did indeed identify major constraints on growth. The second part, I think, of the bigger story is that we do need um, a fairly broad view of outcomes. Um, you know, not necessarily getting metaphysical about the meaning of life, but um, environment and carbon are part of the objectives. Um, David gave the example of you know swimming pools and green other green areas. People do think about these kinds of things around these crucial issues of infrastructure. Bridget, you mentioned the importance of thinking about high-speed uh, rail in terms of what it does to the UK as uh, the UK as a whole in its different regions and so on. And all these things matter in a way that's not simply output in the way that we normally think of it. Although probably none of them divert wildly from the kind of economics we normally think of. They're just not simply narrow parts of output. So that's about how to think of, how to think of things. I think in, in thinking about the project level decisions, which you all emphasize is very important, the way in which these interact with these bigger pictures I've just described does have to be handled rather carefully and with judgment and wisdom and are absolutely not forgotten about. And uh, sometimes you see arguments drifting into just one or just the other. 
and to try to do the marginal without the non-marginal is simply a mistake. And I think, again, you all emphasise that. I think there's a strong emphasis on planning, that it should, uh, the planning, the way in which planning processes take place, and they should have much stronger economic and analytical elements uh, to them. Uh, I think the Town Country Planning Act doesn't have any economics in it at all, if I remember uh, rightly. Well, there was only one when it was published. Um, the, that more economic approach to planning issues does, I think, seem to be something that you uh, all share. We did have a lot of discussion about accounting and the way in which convention does seem to be playing a major role in what actually happens. And after all, accounting conventions are exactly that. They're conventions. And they should help transparency transparency, accountability, clarity, and so on. But if they start determining outcomes in a very major way, something's gone wrong. And uh, we have very clear examples of how that works. Related to that, of course, is the, the financing question. And I think all three of you emphasized very strongly the importance in being able to see, in financial terms, the economic returns, the economic and social returns, that uh, these big investments bring. And with a little bit of sense and good judgment, analysis, economics, dealing carefully with risk, you can indeed release the financing, whether it be through the rates, whether it be through guarantees, whether it be through flaws on carbon prices. It is possible to release the financing in the sense of having confident strict revenue streams in which there can be uh, confidence. Finally, we did, and these things are related, although they're conceptually distinct, we did have a lot of emphasis on the processes of decision-making, and indeed, uh, perhaps also the processes of uh, implementing decisions. Uh, I think there is a, a view that we don't seem to be terribly good at this um, in the UK, at our process of decision-making. That may be because we don't do our cost-benefit analysis very well and we don't link it very well with the overall pictures as we've described. Big issues around uh, expertise and uh, do the people taking the decisions have the right expertise to take the decisions and can we be constructive about that? No point in just saying you are booing or useless. Um, it may be there are very good people under pressure in systems that are not being organised very well. And I took that to be the spirit of uh, what, was, uh, what was being said. And finally, we have to be wise about the interactions between the politics and the economic decision-making in this area. It's a constant uh, theme. Um, it links to the specifics of structures and whether the political objectors have the power relative to another system which says, can we reorganize in a way that uh, the, the winners can in some way compensate uh, the losers to genuinely having different kinds of politics about the role of uh, regions in the UK and, and, uh, and so on. So there's narrow, nasty political economy all the way through to the bigger stories of uh, what it is right for the UK to be uh, pursuing. So I, th I thought that the stories and arguments that you brought were, were really, uh, really helpful and um, 
we're made to be doing is to thank you very much for the work you put in, the thought you've given it beforehand, and of course the lives that you led to give us the experience that you shared. So thanks very much indeed. Thank you.